religious festivals that Jesus is doing his work in and out, in and amongst and around. And Jesus points out the way in which he himself brings to fulfillment all the things that these festivals are supposed to represent, that all the things that are being celebrated, Jesus himself is the focus of how God's people really taste what they should be celebrating. And tonight's passage begins with a festival, the festival of the Passover, and the theme of food and eating. Uh, and we're going to reflect on that in a little bit. But chapter 6 is a long chapter, so we're going to break it up into two. Tonight we'll do half, next week we'll do half. We won't go through everything from chapter 6 tonight. So you can think of this week and next as part A and part B. Uh, and hopefully by the end of next week we'll see how this whole chapter fits together. How about I pray? Dearest Father, we ask that in your kindness, in your attentiveness to us, and the anxieties and worries of your problems this evening, that you might, in the work of your Spirit, calm our anxious hearts and minds. You might enable us to hear what we otherwise wouldn't have the peace to hear. You might give us the understanding to grasp significance things that you speak to us in this passage. And especially, Father, where our hearts are weary or crushed or despairing, we ask that you might do a work in us by your Spirit that enables our hearts even to delight and find joy in the things that you speak to us in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, I'm sure that some of you probably are fans of young adult fiction, and even if you're not, there's probably a good chance you might have heard of this particular series, The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games is uh, a series of stories, young adult fiction, that focuses on or depicts a dystopian future society that's set in once what was the USA. It's a society which, in which food scarcity and hunger is used as a tyrannical tool to control and to manipulate the social and political lives of the people who live in that society. Food scarcity and hunger is used to control and to shape those who live in society. Now, for the novel's characters, it's not only their literal hunger for food that shapes and influences their lives, but equally their figurative, their symbolic hunger, hunger for power, hunger for freedom, hunger for security, perhaps. That fundamentally shapes just about every aspect of who they are. Hunger is a, it's a pretty powerful metaphor, isn't it, for human desire? The physical experience of hungering for food seems such a fitting metaphor for just how deeply felt all our other kinds of longings might be as well. Uh, a Princeton psychologist, uh, Eldar Shafir, wrote a book called The Psychology of Scarcity, Why Having So Little in this book, he's describing uh, the way in which scarcity, not having enough, can profoundly shape how people think and respond to the world around about them. And he describes there a whole bunch of uh, experiments that have been done, social experiments, focused on those who are seasonal farmers. That is, farmers who at one point in the year have uh, pantries that are full, bursting at the seams of food, but at the end of the season, they're just about bare. They're subsistence. They're just living day to day. At the start of the season, after harvest, 
they've got plenty. At the end, they've got next to nothing. And they found that when the Spartans' physical resources, when their pantries are at their most bare, when their physical resources are at their lowest and their most scarce, their capacity for clear thinking and problem solving also dropped dramatically. That is, the more scarce they felt their resources were, the more incapable they felt of relating properly. And it seems, maybe perhaps, that that's exactly what's going on for a couple of Jesus' disciples as they're confronted with the situation in chapter 6 that we read just a moment ago. Have a look at me in chapter 6. Um, we've just been told in the beginning of chapter 6 that Jesus and his disciples have gone into the wilderness up the mountainside. Once they're up the mountainside, just by themselves, they see in the distance a whole crowd of thousands of people coming towards them. And, and we pick up the event from verse 5. Have a look at it. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people? He answered something to test him, but he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered You would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go? For Philip, Jesus' question about where to buy bread isn't even worth the effort of attempting to give an answer to. Where do we buy food? What difference does it make, Jesus? Even if we had half a year's wages at hand right now, we'd not be able to buy enough food for even every person just to have a single bite. For Philip, the scarcity of their financial resources meant it wasn't even worth trying to come up with an answer to Jesus' question about where they might find the bread. At least Andrew is willing to have a crack, I guess, this question. But I'm not confident that his suggestion of the boy's small loaves of fish was, I reckon, was probably more a sign of Philip's bewilderment than it was a sign of any great faith on his behalf. I wonder if you know those people who can't stand in silence and if they're asked a question, will give a bit of an insane answer. If they can't come up with anything sensible to say, just because they can't bear the silence, they'll come up with something. Jesus says, where can we buy food for this entire crowd team? And Andrew says, well, there's this kid's money. For both Philip and Andrew, their fixation upon what they lacked expressed itself in the form of a, I guess you could say, a kind of spiritual tunnel vision. You know, it's curious to me as I was reading this passage, why wasn't it that their minds immediately skipped back to when Jesus had turned the water into wine. Remember that other occasion in which there was a serious lack? And yet Jesus had provided, and not just provided a make-do solution, he provided the best wine that had been surfaced that whole wedding feast. Their minds don't go there at all, do they? They're so hamstrung by the lack that they see and sometimes the scarcity, the ignoring absence of what our own hearts are most hungry for can blind us, can dull our senses to what God himself has the capacity to do. 
far from scoffing at Andrew's pretty awkward uh, suggestion about the boys' lunch, Jesus actually takes the meagre offering of that, like a pile of loaves and a few fish, and transforms it into abundance. Have a look at me at verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10. This is where we'll pick it up. In response to uh, Andrew's awkward answer, Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down, about 5,000 people there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seeking as much as they needed. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who were needed. Notice that Jesus here provides not simply enough. He provides not simply as much as the crowd wanted, but rather he provides more than anyone either wanted or needed. And just in case the twelve disciples haven't been paying attention, Jesus ensures that there is precisely twelve overflowing baskets fulls of them to gather up afterwards. So I mean, just in case they haven't noticed what Jesus has done, they're right there at the end of this event, holding in front of them, each of them, their own overflowing basket full of food. Each basket containing more individually than they began at the start of the season. It's hardly a surprise when this provokes some pretty exciting questions among those who are gathered there by the crowd. Have a look at me at how the crowd responds on witnessing these events. Verse 14. Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Surely this is the prophet, those in the crowd ask each other. Not just a prophet, but the prophet. Who is it that they've got in mind here when they say this observation? They seem to, in some ways, feel as if they recognise who Jesus must be on account of his actions. Almost certainly, I think, they had in mind the prophet that Moses had spoken about back in Deuteronomy. Have a look at me uh, back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, Because we don't have the slides, um, you can find that on page 196. Page 196 in your Bibles, if you have there with you. This will just be the one change that we do. Deuteronomy, it's page 196, Deuteronomy 18, and I'm going to read from verse 14. There Moses speaking, he says, The nations you will dispossess, he's speaking here about Israel getting ready to go to the promised land, okay? The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, 
from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. It's hardly surprising that the crowds think back to Moses to try and make sense of who Jesus is on this occasion. Just as Moses had miraculously met Israel's hunger in the wilderness by providing them bread or manna from heaven, so too has Jesus just done a similarly miraculous feeding feat out in the wilderness. And already in the opening verse of our passage this evening, had identified these events as taking place at Passover. Passover was, of course, the feast that celebrated Moses leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt to freedom. Little wonder that Jesus strikes them as someone who might be well suited to leading them as king. He's able to provide them as with food as Moses had done. He's able to perhaps lead them out of slavery as Moses had led them. But when we read that they were getting ready to take Jesus and make him king by force, I don't think this is any confession of theirs that they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as God's king. Jesus simply fits their profile for someone with the power and capacity to serve their own ambitions, their own longings, to satisfy their own hunger. Even back in Moses' day, God's people had been tempted to trust in the powers of virtue of diviners and sorcerers. They had to be told then, no, don't go after those who miraculous, do miraculous things like that. Listen to the one who speaks God's words, the prophet. And it remains to be seen whether they will actually listen to Jesus, or whether for him, for them, he is just another one who can miraculously provide. The truth is, though, Moses, uh, Jesus, sorry, isn't like Moses. Jesus isn't simply a prophet like Moses. And this becomes abundantly clear in the next section of our passage. Flip back to chapter six again. Chapter six, Jesus, we read, has just withdrawn up to the mountainside to be by himself to avoid being whisked off uh, and crowned king. And we read further following on in verse 16. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. And the waves grew rough. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were surprised. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were. Uh, in Exodus, we read that Moses, in leading God's people to safety and freedom, God had parted the Red Sea, and Moses had led them across with him through the sea, walking on dry land. Jesus doesn't need to dry land. Jesus, we read, simply walks on the water. And that's not just abstract thing. It's not just Jesus trying to one up Moses. You walked across on dry land, look what I can do. Now the Old Testament scriptures do speak of one who can walk on the waves of the sea. I'm going to read to you from Job chapter 9, verse 8. There, speaking about God, 
Almighty, Job says, God shakes the earth from its place. Oh, sorry. Jumps to one verse. Sorry. Job says of God, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Jesus is not simply one who leads life. He is God himself walking with his people. When God spoke with Moses up on the mountain as they were leaving Egypt, you might remember it resulted in God's people experiencing terror and fear. Yet in the person of Jesus, the disciples welcomed the God who treads on the ocean and the seas into their own world without any fear. When the God who treads on the lake and the sea steps into their boat, they fear no more. And it took Moses 40 years to lead Israel to their destination to the promised land. And yet as soon as this man, Jesus, steps into their boat, they have immediately turned up at the destination to which they were In fact, I wonder if you remember that Moses' greatest failure as a prophet was that he was a people pleaser. Remember when Moses in that way. Moses' fear led him to pander to the demands of the people's hunger. The people got hungry, and instead of waiting for God to provide food, they said to Moses, we're hungry now, you give us what we hunger for. And out of fear, Moses said, all right. And that's why Moses didn't enter the promised land. Hand to the hunger of the people rather than giving them what they needed at God's direction and leading. Moses handed to the people's appetites, the people's will, rather than obey God's will. And that's clearly not something that Jesus is willing to do. Because the people, the crowd, aren't done yet chasing Jesus for a fee. Have a look with me down to verse 25. Chapter 6, verse 25. Uh, this is after Jesus has disembarked in Capernaum with his disciples. Uh, the crowds have been waiting for Jesus to turn up. Uh, he'd never shown, so they found their way back in search of Jesus to the other side of the lake as well. And we read in verse 25. When the crowd found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had no fear. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Crowds come, maybe kind of expect quite reasonably, Jesus has already fed them, why not come and ask him to feed them again? But when they do come to him, Jesus says, don't pursue, don't work for the food that spoils. As God's people fled from slavery in Egypt, Moses had miraculously provided manna, or bread from heaven. And do you remember how long that bread lasted? Just the rest of the day. Some of the people tried to hoard it, and when they woke up the next morning, it had spoiled. It was full of maggots. It was a good provision at the time, but it wasn't lasting. 
even a bread that Moses miraculously provided, only lasted a single day before it was broken. Jesus had given them as much bread as they were able to stuff down their Greek diets just at the day before. And yet already their hunger has returned to them. The very next morning, before they even the Bible was, it even hit their lower column. They are hungry again. Don't work for food that spoils, Jesus says. It'll just leave them hungry again. Don't anxiously hunger after that which can only sustain you for a moment. And then it's not good to you. I began today by reflecting on just how fitting hunger is as a metaphor to describe the kindness of desire that can grip us. We all hunger and thirst, we all hunger for anything. No doubt you're immediately aware of some of those things. Others might take a bit more moment to, to reflect on and to think about what you can hunger Some of the things we hunger for, we happily confess to the person sitting right beside us. I'm crazy, hungry for just a good bed. For a long weekend, for a week off, whatever it might be. For others of us, our desires are not known to us. To God, Some of us hunger for recognition. Others of us pray for peace of mind. Some of us are power hungry. Others hunger for deeper friendships or for safety and intimacy. Some are hungry for purpose in life. Some are hungry to be truly understood. But even when we do get a tantalizing taste of those things that we most hunger for, the satisfaction isn't going to last very long. The hunger will return at some point to gnaw at us all over again. Our hunger for healing, perhaps, is frustrating when the chickenpox infection that we thought was cured in our childhood returns unexpectedly as an adult to again afflict us with shingles in later life. What we thought had been dealt with, it turns out well. We might imagine that our hunger for companionship has at last been met in some specific partner, only for loneliness to return, perhaps in widowhood or in the face of betrayal. The success of last week's achievements at work can lose all their gloss and glory before even morning tea comes around the following Monday. Don't hunger for food that spoils, Jesus says. Don't go to things that won't last in order to find satisfaction. Jesus says, I didn't come to satisfy today's hunger, only for it to return as strong as ever at breakfast time the following morning. Hunger for that which will endure into eternal life. Hunger for that which will continue to satisfy into eternity. Hunger for that which I will give you, Jesus says. We want to be careful here not to misunderstand Jesus and what he's offering and he's promising at this point. Jesus isn't simply making a pitch to become our own caterer, to satisfy all the hungers that we've got lined up in our buffet of life, so to speak. Jesus isn't simply offering to become our supplier <coughs> to satisfy our hungers and our desires. Jesus isn't promising that he can simply offer us a better deal whatever desires we have already set our own hungry heart to take. Have a look at in verse 32 to 35 uh, as we wrap up our reflection in this passage this evening. 
Jesus focuses our thoughts a little bit on exactly what he means when he says that he can offer what will truly satisfy. Chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Do you remember that sounds very similar, doesn't it, to the words of the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well, that she said Jesus was offering to give her a drink. She said, Sir, give me this water, but I don't have to keep coming back over and over again. Same thing here. Sir, give us this bread. Always. Jesus responds in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread. I myself am the food that will satisfy your hungry hearts. What on does that mean? It sounds like a pretty wonderful promise, doesn't it? It's got that air of mystery to it. It's not for Jesus to say, I am the bread of life. It seems to hold great promise, and yet there's a bit of ambiguity about exactly what it means. Uh, next week's passage, actually, in the remainder of chapter 6, is going to dig deeper down into that question. The crowds are going to ask, what are you talking about this? What do you mean when you say you are the bread of life? And so we'll only come to our fuller answer of what Jesus is offering as we come back next week to <coughs> chapter 6. Although the Lord's Supper that we're going to share in later this evening, it will illustrate something of what Jesus is speaking about in these verses. So listen for the same things, the same ideas, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But maybe I can just offer a brief comment to set the scene, to give us a bit of a taste of what the significance is that Jesus says. Not just that I give you what will satisfy, but I am what will satisfy. See, there's a difference, isn't there? Between the person who simply gives us what we ask of them and the person who really offers to us their whole self. You ever noticed or felt that difference? There's an almighty difference between the person who yields to us whatever we ask from them and the person who gives us an unguarded share in everything they are in their whole selves. I think perhaps of a parent who is wealthy and can, at a moment's notice, pretty much pay for whatever their kid asks for and yet offers nothing of himself. Or think perhaps of the spouse who is perfectly happy to let the other one make all the decisions about interior decorating, decide where to go on all the holidays, make all the decisions about which social circles to move in and which events to go to, but offers nothing of himself. Gives, but withholds themselves. We know the difference between the person who gives us what we want and the person who gives us everything that they are. See, Jesus isn't simply offering to give us what we think will satisfy our That's not the offer that Jesus makes. Jesus has been given to us from heaven to actually be the one who will satisfy our deepest 
some of us might need to make in our own a shift we need to make in our expectations of Jesus. There might be some of us who are just brand new to church, just logged in for this evening, we're still grappling with who Jesus is and how to relate to him. Or maybe it's been a pattern of our thinking for years and years, for decades even, for some of us as Christians. Do we imagine that Jesus is someone who simply gives us what we think will satisfy our hunger? Or do we see him as the one who is what will satisfy our deep hunger himself? If we're expecting Jesus to address our hunger the first way, then our experience of faith will always be framed by a sense of scarcity, by what we lack, and will we expect Jesus to deliver on? We'll just see an empty hole all the time. We'll just see the gap of what Jesus hasn't yet <coughs> delivered on, but we're still waiting for him to deliver on. What we aren't ever 100% sure he will deliver on. Kind of like the disciples at the start of the second passage. All they can see is the lack gap, what they couldn't do, what they couldn't provide, what they couldn't receive. Yet to grasp that Jesus is offering us his very self, that's to see that he's offering us something that has no use by that. To see that he's offering us something that never spoils or fades, never goes cold. He's offering himself. And it's not just something he's going to offer at the, at the future, in the future some point. He's offering himself to us now, in the present, which is exactly what we will remind each other of as we share in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We'll remind one another of how Jesus has given himself for us already. It's to recognize that in Jesus we're being offered someone who will satisfy both now and be worthwhile over the coming week to go back and read the whole of chapter 6, uh, perhaps familiarise yourself with it. The next week we'll come back and look at how the crowd begin to grapple with what it means that Jesus says to them, I am the Lord God. We'll see their objections, their frustrations, their confusions with what Jesus is offering. Hopefully as we see them grapple with Jesus on that, we'll come to better trust him. Dearest Father, we give you great thanks that you are not inattentive to our longings and our desires. You're not indifferent to what we most hunger for. And yet, Father, we ask that those things that we do hunger for, even those good things that we desire, would never blind us to what you have already given us now, and which will continue on into eternity, your own Son. In the Lord Jesus, you have given us of yourself, fully and completely. You've not just given us things, but you've given us your very self. Father, we know something of the comfort of what it is for others to give themselves to us. Father, we ask that we might appreciate and understand and rest in even more fully the wonder that you give yourself for you to us.